So tonight we're going to be talking about law. When I say law, does anything come to mind? Police. Police? Does a sound effect come to mind? Okay, the siren, no. I was doing law and orders, whatever. Every time I think about that, I think, dong, dong, you know, law and order. So when we look at the law in the scriptures, what's the first thing that y'all think of? The Ten Commandments. You're welcome, sir. Is your bride coming? I, I'm assuming, or are you just carrying her? I know that's yours, not hers, right? That's mine. Okay. Yeah. Hold on, let me look. I don't know, man. I'm not sure about that. So when we think about the law, uh, where's the first place that y'all can think of where the law was uh, given or where the law was uh, made known? Ten Commandments, right? That's, is that the first place or was there a law before that? Adam and Eve, did God give them one thing that they're supposed to be doing? Yeah. How good, how good have we been with the law ever since it's been given? Not as good as we should, probably, right? So tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to take a walk through the Old Testament real quick, like, then I want us to go over the New Testament, and then I want us to sort of take that and look at what that looks like from a parenting perspective, okay? So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm just going to do a real quick recap of the Ten Commandments, talk a little bit about another thing or two within the Torah, the first five books of the, the uh, Old Testament, and then we're going to go over to Romans and really look at what Paul has to say about the law. So when we look here, uh, Moses and the children of Israel, they're out roaming around. They've left Egypt, and they're going to this place called Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses, hey, I want you to go up to the top of this mountain, and he's going to tell him some things that they need to hear. So here we see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we're going to see this. It says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Why do you think you put that first? You think so? I was going to say it sort of falls into play just a little bit, right? I, I'm not good at adept at, at sign. What Anita was going to What was Anita going to do? Oh, you wanted to introduce people or do something? Is that what you wanted to do? Do you want to stop me in the middle of that and do that, or are we going to do that right before we leave? Let's do that before we leave. That way I'm going to roll So you'll have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, right? There's a whole lot of things within that. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Why do you think the Lord laid these out the way he did? The first four are concerning which relationship? This relationship, right? And then the last one's just concerning this. Who's been able to keep all of these? Right, Jesus is the only one. How come mankind is not able to keep all of these laws? We're sinners, we're sinful by nature. Then why was the standard raised so high then? So we can understand grace. Where did that come from, huh? What? Okay, thank you for back there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Charles Spurgeon says this about the Ten Commandments. They're ten mighty cannons aimed at blasting us into hell. Why? Because none of us, none of us, no one in here, no one that's ever been created, no one that's ever been born, is able to keep them perfectly. They are a symbol that we are not able to reach God. Right. So they're a cry, they're a desperate cry from us to recognize, oh, hold on, hold on, I am a sinner. 
I'm in need of grace, and I can't do it. I can't work enough. I can't be good enough. None of these things I can do on my own. I need grace, right? So the Ten Commandments come in. Also, how many laws did, the, did God give in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament? 613 is what I come up with. If you talk to different things, there's different size, but 613 is a pretty good. When you get above 500, it's kind of like, you know, hey, there's a 10% rule somewhere, right? But there was 613 laws found in the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible, and they were the basis of God's covenant with Israel. So when we look at the Old Testament, it is really about God establishing law and order and how things should be done. And then we see people doing what? The opposite to a certain degree, right? There's some that turned and followed the little Lord with all their heart, right? There's some kings we look back and see, and they really did their very best, but none of them could achieve, achieve perfection. So let's flip from here. Let's go over to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And we're going to hear from Paul tonight just a little bit, and this is where I want us to spend the bulk of our time is in Romans 7. And then I want us to go on again and talk a little bit about from, through the book of uh, and just for y'all, you know, we, we do have the book as an outline. It's Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles. And so I take law, and he has a little blurb in there and talks a little bit. And I'm like, hey, that's great, but you know what we really need to talk about? What does the Bible say? Right? That's my ultimate goal here when you teach. What does the Bible say? Because we can talk all day about parenting and law and, and get, stay in our little sort of world. But if we don't apply the Scriptures, we're sort of missing some things. So that's why I want to make sure that we get into the Scripture. So Romans chapter 7, I'm going to read through the whole chapter real quick like. And then we're just going to break it down just for a little bit and we're going to go on. And the title of this, it says in here is Freed from the Law. Interesting. Freed from the Law. Now Paul goes on to continue his thoughts in, in chapter 6 that says dead to sin, alive to God. And he's continuing as he can, uh, this thought pattern. It says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, because of that thought, here's what he's continuing. You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Verse number 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. We can circle that. All manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Let's stop there, 
and take a couple of observations. If we have the time, we'll go through the rest of the chapter. If not, that'll be great homework where y'all can go in and read the rest of chapter 7 and see what Paul's talking about when it talks about, again, being freed from the law. So here in the very beginning in verses 1 through 3, we see this where Paul's talking about how the law has authority only over the living. It says the law has dominion. What does it mean that the law has dominion? What does it mean to have dominion? <coughs> when you hear somebody has dominion, authority, what else? Rule over. I thought you said to roll over. I was sorry. I had, a, had a, I have troubles hearing sometimes. Right? To rule over, have authority. And in the scriptures, the way God set it up, who's supposed to have dominion? God's, God says it up from the garden that man should have dominion. Not just dominion, but dominion over the whole world, right? And instead, now who has dominion? Sin seems to have dominion over the world. The law, though, only has authority over it. It has dominion over people. In Romans 6.14, if you go back a chapter, Paul tells us a great truth. He says, you're not under law, but you're under grace. And now he's explaining that further as we continue. We want to make sure we understand the law has dominion over a man. The ancient Greek here has no word the before the law. It's not saying the specific law. It's saying a, broad, a principle broader than the Mosaic law. The law that has dominion over man includes the law of Moses, which is written down here, but there's also a broader principle of law communicated by creation and by conscience. So these also have dominion over man. If you look at the three ways that we can know, that we can see who God is, we have creation, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. What about conscience? You go to a remote country, people in, intrinsically, they're born with knowing what right and wrong is. And then we have the third and most important thing, which is Christ, right? Who shows us who uh, God is, right? So we have the law having authority only over the living, and it only has dominion as long as he lives. So he gives the example of a husband and a wife. If the husband passes, the wife is free then to marry another man. But as long as that husband lives, there's a law there that takes principle where she's supposed to continue married and vice versa, right? But when uh, death separates us from that dominion of the law. Does that make sense to y'all? Death separates us into two, one of two places, right? Where we're going to pay that penalty. We accept that penalty completely of sin. And we're going to go to a place called hell. Or we have, again, under grace, where God has forgiven us because we've placed our faith in Christ and we've repented and turned to Him. And now we've been able to be set free. When death comes, we're not no longer scared of that. It's not a fear because now once we're apart from this body, we're with Christ. Okay. We'll make sure we're good there. So continuing, our death with Jesus sets us free from the law. We've become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Uh, so we need to make sure we understand we're changed from that path to another. When you get to verse number five here, the problem with the law. When we were in the flesh, under the law we did not bear fruit to God, but we bore fruit to death because this law aroused the passions of sin within us. Is that interesting that Paul points this out, that the law actually points us towards more sin versus the opposite. Does anybody remember? Hold on, let's think. Who's old enough? Eric's might be old enough. Not quite, but there was this thing that we did back in America in the, in the 20s, in the 1900s. It was called prohibition. Has anybody ever, ever heard the term prohibition? Yeah. Does everybody know what that means? Are you sure, Randy? You don't know what prohibition? No. Prohibition is when uh, the United States government decided to outlaw alcohol. How well did that work for them? Okay, let's fast forward to the 80s. What did the government outlaw? Drugs. What's coming across the border by the, the tons, right? It seems like 
people didn't, were not as aware, but once there's a law in place, then all of a sudden it arouses in our flesh desires that we might not have known were not apart from the law. Same thing from a spiritual nature. We have to understand that. <coughs> Praise God, though, we have been delivered from the law because we, when we place our faith, when we repent and place our faith in Christ, we died with Jesus at Calvary, we're dead to the law, and we're delivered from its dominion over us as a, pr a principle of justification, sanctification. So what I want to do is I want to stop there for just a minute at 7.15 and make sure that everyone has, anybody has any questions about anything that we've covered so far. Why is this important in your parenting? This is a parenting class, right? And you're like, all you've done is talked about the law so far in the scripture. Why is it important? How many of y'all, when your parents, if, you know, most of y'all in here that are parents, when you laid the law down, does your child always obey that? No, not at all. And it's sometimes, like if my mom was here, she could say, man, that kid right there, the more we pushed, the more he did what? Rebelled. Pushed back, rebelled, went the opposite way. Another thing the law does sometimes if we're not careful is the law will cause us obedience only when that person's there. And when that authority or whatever's not around, we feel free to do what? Whatever we want to do. For instance, if we take our ch tell our children, right, and we only really read the scriptures here, we only really worship in our three, two hours a week here, and we never do it at home, what are we setting a principle of? This is the place where we go and talk about God, and everywhere else is you just do whatever you want to do. It's a very dangerous principle. And the same thing with the law. You ever heard a parent say, I'm going to lay the law down with this, with this kid? Whose law are we laying down? Is it a law based on my righteousness or on my anger? The law, we've got to be very careful how we lay the law down. Do we have a lot of issues in this country with the law not being applied equitably to everyone? Depends on where you live, but there are some issues there, right? So some of you, if you're running 60 miles an hour, will say you're breaking the law. And some of you say, I wasn't not breaking it until I hit 75, right? <laughs> you know, we all have this internal thing. We're like, oh, I, it, the speed limit's 55. I can run. It depends. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That tractor on the road shouldn't be running that fast, Kevin. I'm sorry. Don't work like that. So if we're not careful, we have this differentiated state where we say, hey, this law applies to me, and I'm good with it, but this law doesn't apply to you. I can push the law to this very, very edge and still get by with it. Is that the way we should be because of what God has done for us? We should push the law to its very limit? I think if we continue on, Paul would say, of course not. That's not the purpose of it, right? So when we look at the law, let's go down here just a little bit here and look. I'm not going to continue through all this. That is homework. I want you all for next week, I want you to have read through the rest of chapter 7 and sort of uh, tried to understand when you get down to the very end where Paul says this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever looked at that and really understood how that is? That Paul, how does it come to where Paul, who's one of the most righteous men we can see in the scripture, comes up and says, man, I am a wretch. Anybody identify with being a wretch? We should, because we are. And he's not saying that like, oh, wretched man. No, he is in almost agony, asking God for something he can't do for himself. Same thing when we're going to get talk about inability here in a minute, right? We need to be asking God to do something for our children that we can't do for ourselves. We can't. We have to have God do a miraculous work in their life. So let me continue down through here. 
I did a lot more on that, but we're going to just focus a little bit harder, right? All right. Okay, so the principle, if we look at it again from the book, it says your children need God's law, but you cannot ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. What tool, what tool are we going to choose to use to help our children grow, mature, and change? What's some tools that are available to us? How about education? That's a big thing today. Back when I was a kid in high school, they had this guidance counselor, and they went to several of us and was like, Y'all need to get a job. You know, there was no college for everyone. That went in. He's like, I think that Navy recruiter, you should go talk to him. And I did, and I left and joined the Navy. It sounded like a good idea, right? There was no principle of higher education for everybody. That's sort of where it's at today. Is education a bad thing? No. Not necessarily, right? Can it be? <clears throat> education as a means to itself will do what? Say again. Yes, it will either puff up or it will knock you down because you'll never achieve that, right? Education is a good thing. Do children need to be educated? Do they need to be educated by all people who decide they want to be a teacher in our world today? No, we need to be very cautious and very careful. We should be involved at the public school level, at the wherever your kids go, homeschool. You should be involved to the point where you know what's being taught, who's teaching it, and what it's about. It shouldn't be when your kid gets home and goes, how was your day? It was good. What'd you learn about? I don't know. Right? And then you move on. That, that's, no, no. We need to make sure. What about church then? Does church have a place in raising your children? Is it a tool? Is it the primary tool? No. Too many people bring their children here and drop them off, and this is the place where they're supposed to get saved. This is the place where they're supposed to be taught. When they come home, they do whatever they want to. I just want to tell you, let me look at the men in the room. It's your responsibility. When you stand in front of God one day, he's going to talk to you about your children. Yeah. What did you do? What did you not do? It's your role. That's why? Because he created us to have <coughs> dominion, not only in the earth, but in our family. We're responsible. As uh, I forget which president it was, the buck stops here, right? That's the, that's the bottom line. I've got four kids. One day I will be held accountable for what I did and didn't do. So we have education. We have church. What about sports? Is that a tool to help your child? Can be, right? Learn how to play with others, learn sportsmanship. Sometimes kids are really gifted in different sports. It's good for them to be able to express that. What's the problem? Sometimes they put too much on the coach, but also sometimes they do what? They put that at number one. And that's the problem with everything, right? If we're not careful, it goes up to number one. And as a parent, we have to be very, very careful the tools that we choose to use, because guess what? If we're not careful, we're showing those children what's most important. And one of the biggest issues we have today is we allow the child to make all the choices. And children are not ready to make the choices. Just like we got a little one over here. Hey, go and go wherever you want to go tomorrow, right? No, that's not how that goes with this one, right? Wear whatever you want to wear, eat whatever you want. No, that's not how it works, right? As they get older, then they can have responsibility to choose certain things. But we ultimately need to be in control in making those decisions as we go. So here's a statement. I want to see what y'all think about here. If rules and regulations have the power to change the heart and life of your child, well, let me just ask that as a question. Do rules and regulations have the power to change the heart and life of your child? 
Do we sometimes behave like that, though? What are rules and regulations for? Is it good to have rules and regulations? Right. It is, right. We need rules and regulations. We need baselines on how things are. We need guardrails put up. We need certain things clarified, right? But do rules and regulations change hearts? They regulate behavior. What's the problem with just regulating behavior and not changing hearts? And the scary part of that is, is they'll find somebody else that's going to tell them whatever law they have and whatever they should be doing. And is that the person we want them to be looking towards? No. It could be Uncle Sam. Could be your drill instructor. Could be your boss. Could be somebody else. Could be their peer group. That's a scary proposition there. Right. Let's ask other people that don't know anything about what I'm going through. That's pretty scary, right? So... Rules and regulations don't have the power to change the heart and life of your child. So it's up to a parent to do what? To help them to have a heart of submission and faith. How do we show them best to have a heart of submission and faith? By example, do you have a heart of submission and faith? Model the parent's responsibility. And those are not terms that most people today want to talk about. When you say rod and reproof, most people automatically are like, I'm out, right? I'd rather just get along. Let's just have some peace right now. If we always sacrifice peace on that wonderful altar for truth, what do we come up with? Is it really peace? No, it's just a little moment of time where you're not having somebody in your ear, but you're going to pay more next time and more next time. And then wait till they get to be teenagers. Bless your hearts, right? If we don't take the time and make sure that we're doing the right thing at each age level as we go through appropriately. So, and again, if we can't do that, Jesus would never have needed to come. Let's just be honest. If we could just follow the law, there's no need for sacrifice, right? Everybody can just, okay, you've got it. That's not how it works. Our children need God's law to give them the grace of wisdom and the grace of conviction. That's something we don't like to hear often either. Conviction is a good thing. Wisdom is going to define what's right and wrong, not the rules and regulations, right? You should be training your child to where they can recognize what's right and what's wrong according to what God says. Conviction is going to instruct them about when doing wrong and you need to do what? Right, right? Not me saying, that's wrong, do that. And we should be training them to allow the Spirit of God to convict their heart and they course correct to what the Scripture says. Parents are God's instruments to do what? To shepherd them. It's a short season very difficult when they're little and you think, man, this is, no, it's a short season, right? We need to make sure we understand that the law is unable to do what grace must accomplish. We need to make sure we understand God's grace is essential. The greatest danger to our children, as we read that study to begin with, the, pre, the Pew Research thing, talking about all this stuff outside, it's not outside. The greatest danger to our children is inside, sin. That's the greatest danger to our children. And us as parents, we are called to enforce God's law and to constantly exhibit and teach God's grace there. All right, so that's law, inability. And I'm almost done. I knew I, knew I wouldn't get, law was going to take the most amount of time. Inability, recognizing what you are unable to do is essential to good parenting. That sounds strange. Recognizing what you are unable to do is essential to good parenting. Uh, why do you think most parenting you need a man and a woman? Why? Because I messed up, 
right? Let's just be honest. There's the two of us in the relationship, and there's a lot of stuff I really can't do as well as she can. Why do you think God puts the two of us together? Because she can do things better than me. But really, inability. How many of y'all can really raise a child to love God on your own? I mean, we have to come to a point where we recognize, you know, it's probably about 10 or 12 years ago, I recognized that every day I desperately need Christ. It took me a while. Therefore, while I lived in this facade of, I'm doing all right. I can do this. I'm working. I'm doing all these things. The I is the problem. We need to come to a point where we recognize every day I desperately need the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. I desperately need it, meaning I can do nothing. What does it say about the vine and the branches? We are not the vine. Let's just go ahead and toss it off the thing, right? We're the branches. We're completely dependent on God. Do we live and act like it? We must learn to live dependently on God if we're going to expect anybody following along behind us to do the same thing. We must take what this says, and this must be preeminent, over what I want to do. Hold on. What I feel like doing. We have an inability problem. Parenting is not really about exercising power for change, but it's really about partnering with God for the sake of our children. God gives parents the authority for the work of change, but not the power. The power comes through the Holy Spirit. Can we manipulate that and change that, where we can, Holy Spirit, work on this kid? We can pray. We should pray. But who should we ask the Holy Spirit to work and change first? My heart. I try to daily pray about my attitude. Because can I just be honest with y'all? My attitude stinks often. And I pray that God would change my attitude. And then my actions would match my attitude. And we really need that. And if you look at a child's behavior, we have a lot of children that, are, uh, that misbehave, right? Why do you think they misbehave? Things go, whatever's inside is coming out, right? Is it always something bad? Not always, but oftentimes the behavior is what's going on inside and it's coming out in different ways. Children need attention. Do you all agree with that? Oftentimes children are getting attention, but they're getting negative attention because of what's going on. So we need to flip that and do what? Pay attention to what's going on. Listen, everybody should know your child the best, right? You should not remember when we had little babies and you could understand, you could say, okay, that's a hunger cry. That's a, I'm bored and I want somebody to come pick me up. You know, you can sort of get to a point where you recognize different things. Why? Because of that familiarity, right? Before, because you understand and know that child. But we have to do that as they grow. Inside change always precedes outside change. We can't know what's going on in a child's heart. But as we watch them over time, I know you brought this up the other week, Kevin, about at school, somebody being, having compassion on another kid. Why? You, that starts in the heart. And then it works its way out into actions. Sometimes that get, there's a gap there. And we're like, what's going on in there? We have to give it time to work its way out. I want to make sure that we do three tools here, and then I'm going to be done. Three powerless tools we often use to create change in our child. Fear, shame, and reward. Threats without grace will never bring foundational change in the heart. I'll say that one more time for you. Threats without grace will never bring foundational change in the heart. Rewards, apart from grace, will mask what is real value for the child, and then shame and guilt cause the child to feel horizontal guilt with a parent rather than understanding their heart condition and understanding what they need with God. 
The worst thing we can have is our children naturally fearful of someone my size. Yeah, have you ever used it for your advantage point? Absolutely I have, right? It's not the worst thing. But why am I, am I wanting them to fear me because I want their behavior, their attitude to change in relation to God? Or is it I just want them to do whatever I want them to do right now? Again, fear is not the best motivator for children. Why do y'all think that is? Push them away. Do you like it when somebody comes up in you and does the same thing? Say, for instance, you know, a cop pulls you over for no reason, and he comes and wants to put you on the ground or do whatever. Do you like that? As, especially y'all guys. I'm sure all y'all like that, right? No, we don't like to be intimidated, right? That's not the best way to change a behavior, right? What about when it looks to reward? Hey, I'll just give you this piece of gum if you'll be quiet, right? Well, if you make an A, I'll give you $10. Well, what's the problem with all those things? Temporary fixes, they're fixed for the moment. Mm-hmm. No, and that's the problem. We're not addressing the heart often in parenting. We're, again, addressing whatever reaction, whatever there is in, a, in that moment of time. And then shame and guilt. There's a lot of us today that's probably dealing with shame and guilt from how we were raised. Let's be honest. There's things that happen, and you still remember and go through it right now, right? Shame and guilt should not be in the motto of the Christian. Why? That's gone, right? There's a new creation. We've been changed so, let's see, I'm almost done here, I promise. Good parenting lives at the intersection of a humble admission of personal powerlessness and a confident rest in the power and grace of God. Interesting. Humble admission that I'm powerless, but I'm confident in who God is. Don't mean we don't do anything. I'm not saying we're just like, uh, no, that's not the kind of powerlessness being humble and having a confident rest. God has not placed the burden of change on us should, uh, on that should require us to do what only he can do. Can, can you change a heart? Can you influence a heart? Yeah. Sometimes we want the opposite. I want to change it, change it now, versus influence and then allow God to do what only he can do. God has called and desires us to equip us as parents to be humble and faithful instruments to bring about change in the lives of our children. And I want to make sure I say this again. It's not just about our children. It's about everybody's children. There is no Switzerland when it comes to raising children. You're either a positive influence in the life of someone else or you're a negative. And I'm not talking about just kids. I'm talking about adults and everything else. Some of the things we're talking about here, we need to be applying that to the people we work with, to our neighbors. That's why I want to make sure when we look at, hey, this is a, it is a parenting class. But guess what? There's other people that we're going to parent as you age. There's other people that you're going to have influence over for the gospel. Are we going to use that? Are we going to continue the patterns that we've had? So... The law, necessary? Yes, right? Law points us towards grace, right? And then inability. We have to come to a point where we recognize I can't do it alone. I can't do it apart from God. And I need Him. All right? Let's pray. Do you still want to do whatever you're talking about doing? Then we'll go to a small group. Yeah? No? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your law. Thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you didn't leave us alone. God, that you didn't leave us without help. But God, you've given us your word. God, you've given us the law, Lord, to point us to the fact that, Lord, we, we can't do this without you. God, we need you. We need you in every way. We need you in every situation, in every, every area, every facet of our lives, God. We need you. So God, help us, Lord, to only, not only realize that, Lord, but just humble ourselves and ask you for things, God, that we can't do on our own. God, help us, Lord.
in the areas where we have influence, in the areas where we can point. God, help us to point towards the Scriptures. Help us to be uh, what the Scriptures say, God. Help us to use the Scriptures, as we mentioned earlier, Lord, to exhort, to encourage, Lord, but only, not only that, to rebuke, Lord, to make sure they understand there is a holy way that you have pointed out, Lord. There's a law that you've pointed out within the Scripture, Lord. There's a thing, that, uh, righteousness, God, that we need to be patterning and living our lives after, God. So I just pray that we would help us to understand that, God, and live that out. And God, help us to be that influence, Lord, for, for good in the lives of those children that, we, that you've blessed us with. And God, for those other people that we're going to be able to live that out in front of, God. So I pray as we take our time here and we separate into some small groups and we go through and talk through this, the different things that we've learned tonight, God, I pray that we'd have the, uh, the opportunity, Lord, to speak, Lord, the opportunity to ask questions, the opportunity to, to just share the things that uh, you've laid on our hearts, God. I pray that you would just uh, speak and move during this time. And again, God, we thank you for all that you do. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.